We are in week number three of this series going verse by verse through this very early epistle that we find recorded in our Bibles, the book of 2 Thessalonians. In March of 2011, the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list was this book, Heaven is for Real. Now, this book, many of you may remember it, was the alleged recounting of a four-year-old's near-death experience and his supposed trip to heaven and to see the glories thereof. Now, obviously, by my usage of the adjectives alleged and supposed, you get an idea of what I think about this book and its reliability. But as a bestseller, it garnered tremendous uh, amount of attention and subsequent conversation about eternal matters, about heaven, about hell. There are many books, many so-called testimonies of these near-death experiences, and while they can all be certainly intriguing, they can be curious, I believe they do not serve us well as reasonable authorities on the subject. I can tell you definitively heaven is for real. But I tell you that not based on the book that has the spotty recollection of a preschooler. I tell you that based on a book called the Bible. The Bible informs us of this truth, heaven is for real. But I can also tell you, based on the authority of the Bible, hell is for real. And that's, in fact, the title of my, of my sermon today. Some years ago, this question was asked by one of the royal princesses as she was departing a service at the royal cathedral in England. As she was departing, she said to the clergyman, is hell for real? And the clergyman responded to her majesty, the princess, your majesty, our Lord Jesus and his apostles taught it. The creeds affirm it and the church believes it. To that she responded, well then in God's name tell people it is so. This royal princess observed a real phenomenon that was happening then and is also happening today. That is, preachers shy away from telling the reality of hell. In older days, preacher would, preachers would not do so as much, but they would vividly describe hell. Let me just show you a few examples. From the 1600s, a Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Watson had this to say about the reality of the suffering of hell. He said, the torments of hell abide forever. Time cannot finish it. Tears cannot quench it. The wicked are salamanders who live always in the fire of hell and are not consumed. After they have lain millions of years in hell, their punishment is as far from ending as it was at the beginning. We move forward a century to Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was the principal preacher during the great awakening that occurred in the colonies here in these United States. One of his most famous sermons is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In another sermon, he had this to say about the eternality of hell. He, cons he said, consider that if once you get into hell, you'll never get out. They that go there return no more. Consider how dreadful it will be to suffer such an extremity forever. 
Now, preachers who may talk like this today would be considered to be unbalanced. But listen to how Charles Spurgeon, in the next century, challenged preachers with regard to this subject of hell. He said, quote, Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches in the name of God? We will not. Now, one of the results of expositional preaching that we practice here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church, where we go verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, not skipping the difficult sections, is just that. We handle the hard parts. This topic, if you're a guest, is not one I just chose out of a hat to preach on this morning. We're preaching verse by verse through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And this, I think, preaching expositionally through books of the Bible keeps us balanced because we mention hell as often as the Bible mentions hell. And so, as we look at two verses from the first chapter of this letter, let's consider them together, the subject matter of hell. Verse 8, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Over the last half century, particularly in American evangelicalism, there has been a revising, as it were, on the doctrine of hell. Now, in order to do that, there must be a total revision and disregard for a significant portion of the Bible, the greatest of which would be the words of Jesus himself. More than anyone else, more than any other part of the Bible, Jesus taught vividly about the reality of the existence of hell. He taught on hell more than he did on heaven. But it doesn't change the fact that this subject is not a particularly encouraging one. One theologian I respect who passed away recently, R.C. Sproul, was once asked, what is one doctrine in the Bible that you have great difficulty with? He responded with one word answer, hell. Hell is a difficult doctrine. When we think about hell and the torment of hell, the suffering of hell, the pain of hell, and the length of hell, we ask questions. Is this just? Is it equitable? Is it fair? How could a loving God send people to hell? And to be quite honest, it is not one that I was particularly looking forward to preaching but we must preach the whole counsel of God. From this text, I want to show you two primary evidences for the reality of hell and what hell is about. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider the people inhabiting hell. The people inhabiting hell. One of the things that is so troubling about the biblical doctrine of hell is the fact that the Bible says there will be people there. People you know. Perhaps people in this room. People just like you who live lives, who have families, who go to work, who do their jobs. They will be inhabiting hell. 
Friends, just as surely as the Bible promises that in heaven there will be people gathered around the throne from every tribe and language and nation, just as equally there will be people in hell from every tribe, nation, and language. It's a devastating reality to consider this fact. But in this passage, Paul identifies seemingly two categories of people who reside eternally in hell. The first category I would describe as those who are unreached. Those who are unreached will forever inhabit hell. Notice what Paul says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Now, several scholars I read this week as I studied this passage interpreted this particular category, those who do not know God, as Paul referencing in the first century Gentiles. Gentiles would be those they considered to be pagans, those who worshipped false gods, those who were not Jewish, those who had not heard of the one true God, those who had no knowledge of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I think certainly there are those today who would fall into this category. Those who have no knowledge of the God of the Bible, those who have never had the gospel taken to them, that they might know God and hear of his love in the gospel of Jesus. They are unreached. Now, in one sense, the Bible does teach that every human being has what we might refer to as a general knowledge of God. In Romans chapter 1, we're informed of this truth. The Bible says, For what can be known about God, here's knowledge of God, is plain to them, the nations, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So the point Paul makes in Romans 1.19 is that every human being in every location, in every century, has a general knowledge of God. To look at the order of our world, to look at the design of the universe, and to conclude there's no intelligent being behind all this, well, that's pushing down logic. Common sense tells us this. That's suppressing the truth, that if there is order, there must be a divine orderer. If there is design, there must be a divine designer. But we know here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul must be talking about a different kind of knowledge of God. Not just the general knowledge of God that we can see in creation, we can see in the order and design of creation, but a special knowledge of God, specific revelation of God. Now, if you've been at Lookout Valley Baptist Church for any period of time, you've probably heard this term unreached or unengaged. We, we talk about that. You've probably heard us talk about what's called the 1040 window. In fact, I've got a map that shows us that 1040 window. The 10 and the 40 refer to the 10 degree and 40 degree lines of latitude above the equator. And we see in that map there this rectangle that's where most of the unreached and unengaged people with the gospel live. Some have asked me the question before, why do we spend so much time, energy, and resources taking the gospel there when there are people in Chattanooga who need the gospel? And I get the sentiment of that question, but here's the deal. In Chattanooga, there are dozens, perhaps hundreds, of gospel-preaching churches and tens of thousands of gospel-believing Christians. In the 1040 window, there's an estimated 
2 billion people with no church and no access to the gospel. They will be born. They will live their entire 70 or 80 years of life and they will die without ever hearing about Jesus. Why do we take the gospel to them? Because they're unreached. They're unengaged. Now if this is the case, it begs a really big question. If they are born and they live and they die without ever hearing about God's love in Christ, what happens to them in eternity? And I think for most Christians in America, either one, they don't know there's two billion unreached people around the world, or two, we assume, well, they'll just get a free pass as far as eternity goes. They'll just get a free pass into heaven because they didn't know. But my dad who has given his life over the last 40 years to get the Bible to these people, we once had this conversation. He said, Troy, uh, the unreached, if they never hear the gospel, they're, they're not judged on what they don't know, are they? I mean, what happens? And if they get a free pass to heaven because of their lack of knowledge, then the worst thing we could do for them is to take the gospel to them. The worst thing my dad said we could do for them is for me to print Bibles and deliver them to them. If this is true, before we ever get to those remote villages and towns and people groups and languages and cultures, 100% of them are going to heaven. The missionaries show up with the gospel, now many of them are going to hell. Thanks a lot, missionaries. We really appreciate that. This obviously can't be the case. Because throughout the New Testament, we are compelled, yes, commanded, to take the gospel to them. In fact, Paul described this unfinished task at the end of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, he said this in verse 20 and 21, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he tells them, I'm coming to visit you. My plans are to come see you. And after I see you, I'm headed to Spain. Why? Because they've never heard about Jesus in Spain. Obviously, Paul didn't believe that the unreached get a free pass to heaven. Otherwise, he would have not given his life to take the gospel to them. And he explains why they don't get a free pass at the beginning of the book of Romans. Shortly after, he explains that every human being has this general knowledge of God because God has revealed himself in creation. You can't look at creation and not understand there is a God. Well, how does every human being on the planet throughout every century and every location respond to this general revelation of the knowledge of God? He continues in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. David Platt once asked the rhetorical question, what about the innocent man in the jungles of Ecuador or in the small villages and mountains of Nepal. What about him who has never heard the gospel? Won't he automatically go to heaven? And to that response, David Platt said, yes, based on the Bible, that person would go to heaven automatically. The only problem is that person doesn't exist. 
There are no innocent people in Nepal. There are no innocent people in the jungles of Ecuador. There are no innocent people in this church in Chattanooga. We're all guilty before God. And so, because we are guilty in our sins, our foolish hearts are darkened. We've exchanged the glory of God for images of animals and people. We are all guilty and destined for hell. You know, a lot of Christians' missions organizations primarily focus on the alleviation of human suffering in their strategies. And that's certainly important. In our ministry in Zimbabwe, when we send teams to Zimbabwe, we send them and they purchase food and we go hut to hut and give food away to alleviate the suffering of hunger and poverty. We've got a team going to Guatemala at the end of this month and they're going with hundreds of shoes collected primarily by our students, our youth ministry. They're taking these shoes up into the mountains, into these remote villages, to deliver them to shoeless children. But do you know how we can alleviate the greatest human suffering? Preach the gospel. Because the greatest human suffering is not poverty, it's not hunger, it's not shoelessness. The greatest example of human suffering is eternity in hell. We go with the gospel. We feed them. We shew them that we may get a hearing for the gospel. Why? Because the unreached will be inhabiting hell forever. They've refused and rejected the God who has revealed himself in nature. But the second category of people who will be inhabiting hell forever are not only those who are unreached, but those who are unbelieving those who are unbelieving. Paul continues, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if this first category Paul's referring to as the scholars suggested in my study this week are the Gentiles, the pagans who have no knowledge of the one true God, then it, it, it stands to reason the second group are Jews of the first century. They have knowledge of the one true God. They have the scripture revealed to him, them, but they have rejected the Son of God. They do not believe the gospel. They have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who have heard the good news that Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the one who has come to rescue us, not only the Jews, but all of humanity from our sin and from our lostness. But make no mistake, there will be people inhabiting hell for all of eternity who have heard the gospel countless times but have chosen to reject it over and over again. They've made the decision to forsake the love of God displayed in Jesus. And it's interesting the way Paul terms this decision he says, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We often think of the gospel as a warm-hearted invitation. And it is that. But beyond that, it's a sovereign summons that must be obeyed. The God of the universe says, submit to Christ as your Lord. You don't obey that, you're destined for hell. John the Baptist said this in the end of John chapter 3. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And these are the people 
who will inhabit hell, the unreached, those who have never heard the gospel. That's why we go, Christian. That's why we send. And those who have not believed the gospel. But not only do I want us to consider the people inhabiting hell, but secondly, the punishment inflicted in hell. Hell is punishment. It is punitive. It is the just recompense for those who have died in their sins and rejected the gospel. Hell involves God's full and just punishment for what our sins deserve. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, the Bible describes how vividly there will be books opened for the godless. And those books contain all the sins we have accumulated in our lives. And I don't know how long this is going to take. I don't know how time works in eternity. But every sin of every unbeliever will be read out loud for the cosmos to hear. Every thought, every word, every deed. And the Bible says in Revelation 20 that at that dreadful experience of having the secret sins of our lives revealed to the world, those who did sin in that way will be judged accordingly. Now, to be sure, there is punishment in this life for sin. There is judgment for sin, not just in eternity, but in this life. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, yes, that is eternal death, but there's also a ration of death experienced in this life because of sin. Again, in Romans 1, Paul talks about how those who reject God are given over. He gave them over. And that is the judgment of God, giving people over to their particular sin patterns, giving them over to their particular lust, giving them over to their particular debased way of thinking. There's a trilogy of this God judging sinners through this giving over. I want you to see what they are. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, the Bible says, God gave them up, here's the giving over, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Two verses later, he describes another giving over. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. He concludes this trilogy of his giving over, this judgment, in verse 28 and following. Notice what he says there. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I've been asked before, Pastor, do you think God will judge America? And I say God has already judged America by the giving over of the depraved minds of this culture to all these malicious and sinful things. We are a judged people. And unless God supernaturally intervenes, we are headed for even worse judgment. But here, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's 
focus is not just on the punishment for sin that is happening in the here and now and the giving over to the evil that's so rampant, but the punishment for sin that will happen for all of eternity in hell. In fact, there are three aspects, three things about this punishment I want us to consider that are so dreadful. The first one is this. Number one, it's torment. It's torment. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. One of the realities about hell that's repeated over and over and over again in the Scripture is this aspect of physical suffering, physical pain, physical torment. And this experience of torment, friends, it is conscious torment. Paul says, suffer. This is an ongoing, active word. The end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, we find the good news that the devil and his angels will in fact be thrown into hell. Notice how the Bible records it in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. But also at this final judgment, five verses later, not just the devil and his angels and the false prophet and the beast are tormented in hell. Look who else is in hell. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible describes that at the return of Christ, at the coming of Jesus, all the dead will be resurrected, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And all the dead will receive new bodies that are fit for eternity. For the godly, for those who trust in Christ, we will receive bodily, bodies that are fit to live in eternity forever with Jesus. The unrighteous, too, will receive bodies that will never be consumed, that will never burn up, that will never die. Fit for eternity. Jesus himself said that those who rejected God and his offer of mercy in the gospel will experience this eternal judgment. He said in Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, by speaking of fire and burning again and again and again, the Bible makes plain this punishment is physical torment. In fact, the clearest testimony of bodily torment in hell again, comes from Jesus himself. In Mark 9, 48, he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Even the smallest worm, as it were, in hell will never die. It is eternal torment. Now, some people try to minimize this physical torment of hell by saying, well, this idea of fire, it's a metaphor. It's imagery. It's merely a symbol of hell's punishment. And if that's true, I would ask, well, what is it symbolizing? What is fire a metaphor for? And much as a scholar much more intelligent than me asked the same question and answered it, James Montgomery Boyce said this, although the Bible uses imagery to portray the unimaginable, it does so precisely because the reality is unimaginable. That is, the suffering of the wicked in hell is so intense and so terrible that if it is not actual physical suffering by fire, 
only such intense physical suffering can be used to describe it. In other words, words don't contain the depth of torment of hell. The very reality of such horrific punishment should persuade us not to argue with God about its existence, but instead to fearfully believe that God has revealed truth about the reality of hell. So this is the first thing Paul presents with regard to the punishment inflicted in hell is number one, it's torment. They will suffer. Number two, it's time. It's time. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. You might want to circle that word eternal on your Bible or outline. The Bible's teaching on the punishment of hell is so dreadful. Again, many Christians have chosen not to accept it. This is especially true with regard to the eternal nature of hell. One way to avoid this, uh, this fact that hell lasts forever, is to say, yes, we can't deny the fact the Bible teaches about hell, that there is, pun- it is punishment inflicted on the lost, that it is terrible and tormenting, but we can't handle the fact that once you're in, you can never get out. The severity of that truth. And so they try to mitigate that severity by suggesting other things. One of these reimagined ideas about the eternality of hell is something that's called universalism. Universalism. This teaching holds that while, yes, God must punish sin because of his righteous, holy character and nature, there is punishment after the death of someone. However, the universalist says, God is so great in his love and in his mercy that eventually he will win over even the vilest offender in the afterlife and they will all be brought into the glories of heaven. This concept was brought to the forefront in modern-day evangelicalism about 10 years ago when a very popular and well-known pastor and author by the name of Rob Bell released a book called Love Wins. And this book, Love Wins, puts forward this concept that you can guess that in the end, love wins. The love of God wins everybody over eventually. In fact, notice this quote from the book that summarizes the entire idea. Bell writes, given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. This happens, he says, because after death, there are second chances or third chances or fourth chances for all those who have rejected Christ in this life. They get another chance to trust in him. Now, the problem with universalism, the problem with this concept is it is completely contradictory to the teaching of the Bible. Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, very familiar to most of us. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, what you do with the gospel in this life forever determines where you will spend eternity in the next life. What follows your death is not second, third, fourth, and fifth chances, but what follows is judgment. And this was Jesus' perspective. He frequently warned people and pressed upon them the need to now trust in him 
In John 8, 24, he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, this urgency of Jesus' appeal would be pointless if after dying, you got a second chance. And Paul makes it clear here that hell is eternal destruction. This word for eternal, it's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament to describe eternal life. The same chronological quality of heaven is ascribed to hell. Jesus himself did as much in Matthew 25, 46. He says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As long as people exist in heaven, this is how long people will exist in hell. And just as eternal life is blessed communion with God, eternal death, eternal hell is exclusion and cursed state from the presence of God. So the reality of the punishment inflicted in hell is one, it's torment, two, it's time. Thirdly, it's terror. It's terror. The third descriptor of the nature of hell in verse 9, if we truly understood the implications of it, it would strike fear and terror to the very core of our being. What is it? They suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Here it is. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I don't think we could in this life fully grasp that concept. It was the 80s hair metal band Cinderella that observed rightly, you don't know what you got until it's gone. And that's the same about the presence of God. You don't know what you got until it's gone. Even the atheist, the militant atheist who vehemently opposes any concept of God, he is right now, in this moment, enjoying the omnipresence of God. He's enjoying and reveling in the fringe benefits of the common grace of God, that God is here. If God were removed, the void would be filled with such filth and hostility and darkness and destruction that we could not conceive of it. Some have attempted to turn down the fires of hell by saying hell is only separation from God, as if separation from God by itself is not as bad as the torment in fire. But friend, if you're here and you've ever experienced depression, despair, real gut-level fear, hopelessness. You've experienced just a morsel of what life without the presence of God will be like. Paul's expression, away from the presence of the Lord, that recalls to our mind the Aaronic blessing that was given in Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Covenant. What was that blessing? Look at Numbers 6, 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This blessing is the highest expression of what any creature could expect to experience. Looking into the face of the glory of God and having intimacy with our creator This is heaven. 
correspondingly, the greatest desolation possible would be to eternally be shut out from the presence of God. A 19th century pastor and theologian, John Lilly, warned about this separation from God with these sobering words. He said, the day is coming when to be forever separated from the Lord, to hear from his lips that one word, depart from me, will be found to comprise in it all elements of woe, the darkness and horror, the anguish and despair of hell. Thus to be condemned to hell, to be condemned to be separated from God, it's the reversal of the Aaronic blessing. What would that be? Look at this next slide. The Lord curse you and reject you. The Lord darken his face to you and withhold all grace. The Lord turn away his countenance and leave you in despair. And Paul compounded the terror of hell, not just by being separated from the presence of God, but eternally, he says, we would be separated from the glory of his might. You see that in verse 9? You see, because those who are in hell are eternally separated not only from his presence, but also from the glory of his might, they are separated from the very grace of God that is necessary, that is required to turn to God. What do you mean? Did you know that the Bible records the inhabitants of hell as not being those who are sorry for their decisions? Not being those who are repentant? Not being those who say, well, God, if you just give me another chance. No, just the opposite. Those who are under judgment of God are said to be still cursing God. Jesus, in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is in hell, Lazarus is in heaven, and the rich man does not repent of his abuse of the impoverished Lazarus in this life. He doesn't say, I'm sorry for mistreating you, Lazarus. He still sees Lazarus as his poor errand boy. What does he say? In chapter 16, verse 24, the Gospel of Luke the rich man says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. There's no repentance here. There's no sorrow over sin. In fact, there's an interesting statement in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. The angel is speaking to John, and he's speaking about the eternal state of both the damned and the blessed. Notice how he describes it in these parallel language. He says in Revelation 22, 11, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. He's describing here in this parallelism between those who are eternally holy and those who are saved by grace that, that you're to live this way or they will live this way. Again, those who are suffering, Revelation 16, 21 says those who suffer judgment curse God. Hell involves eternal hatred of God. The atheist, the agnostic, the pew warmer will not be sorry for his sin. Now, as we think about that, we think about this concept that Rob Bell puts forward. If you just get a second or third or fourth chance, when you are separated from the presence of God and the glory of his might, you are not quickened to get a second chance or to take a second chance if it was offered. 
You could get a million second chances and you would still reject God. That's why hell is forever, because they are forever cursing God. Now, as we come to a conclusion, as we seek to apply all that we've considered today in the doctrine of, the, of hell, first we must realize how important it is that we teach this subject. That we cannot shy away from it. And as I said at the beginning, because we preach expositionally, every time we get to hell in a book of the Bible, we're going to talk about hell. But why is it so important? Now, there are those that think and imagine we're kind of improving on the message if we kind of, you know, level out the rough places. We update the Bible, smoothing over with some kinder, gentler language. Here's the difficulty with that. When you diminish the doctrine of hell, you are also diminishing every other Bible doctrine. How so? See, by diminishing the doctrine of hell, we diminish the gravity of sin. We don't think sin's a big deal if hell's not real. Further, by diminishing the doctrine of hell, we diminish missionary zeal. We diminish the obedience to the command of the Great Commission, go into all the world. That's why so many quote-unquote Christian missions organizations don't preach the gospel. They don't believe in hell. But probably of greatest consequence, if we diminish the doctrine of hell, we diminish the doctrine of the work of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus even die? Why did he even come? Why was he hung on a cross naked and bare for the world to see after being beaten viciously? I'll tell you why. Because there on that cross, he took our hell. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he experienced separation from the glorious might of the Father. For the first time, the union between God the Son and God the Father that had been forever and eternally and always past enjoyed, that communion was severed. And in that moment, that was hell. And he did that for you. We diminish the doctrine of hell we diminish the sacrifice of Jesus. Instead of toning down the Scriptures when it comes to difficult matters, here's what I would suggest. That we pray to the Lord, increase my faith. Your word is true. Let every man be a liar. I'm going to believe what the Bible says. Doing this will require us to bow to God. Doing this will require us to submit to the authority of his words, as the royal princess said to the clergyman, if the scriptures teach it and the church confesses, then for God's sake, we must tell people. We must not sacrifice biblical fidelity on the altar of cultural expediency. But finally, I think at this moment, at this time, the most urgent implication regarding the doctrine of hell is that everyone in this room know they're not going there. That's the most relevant application of this passage. Have you, have you, through faith in Jesus and his assuaging of God's hellish punishment for your sin, 
through his death on the cross, have you placed your faith in that? Have you trusted in Jesus alone and his work, his merit, not your own merit? Well, I'm just a pretty good guy. You know where that'll get you? Hell. Are you trusting in Jesus alone? If you have not, if right now, after examining yourself to see that you're in the faith, you would say, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Don't leave this place without getting settled. As we close this service today, I'm going to be here in the front. Our elders will be here as well for you can, to make your calling and your election sure, to be sure that you're in the faith. In fact, I close this message by echoing the words of Paul to that church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. He said this, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God.